Hey guys, welcome back to the Elevate HD podcast. This is episode eight, and today I am joined by Paul Standell. Paul is a coach, he's an educator, he has a big passion in biomechanics, which is how we met, and also newly ventured into kind of the camera skills realm for coaches. And until very recently, last week, he was a member of the Muscle Mentors, but now has decided to embark on a new venture for himself, which is currently under wraps. But I'm very excited to hear what he has in store because I think it's going to be very, very cool. So, Paul, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on, Holly. It's nice to be here. Yeah, so myself and Paul met in January 2020, just before the lockdowns and and all that stuff hit. So we Mm. attended uh, Foundations of, well, Integra Foundations together in Third Space. So, yeah, yeah, so our biomechanics journey kind of started at the same time. Mm. Um, So... In terms of the biomechanics side of things, how has that kind of changed your coaching? Has that kind of made a big difference in how you coach people? Imagine I said no. Imagine no, I was like, no, that's that's the same. Made <laughs> zero difference whatsoever. I don't do anything differently. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, we, we wouldn't develop a, a love for this thing if we didn't think it made a difference. If it was just some random crap to know, that might be cool, might be useful at a pub quiz. But it, it's not, it doesn't make much of a difference to your, to your day-to-day coaching. I think the reason anyone who gets into biomechanics or plays a bit with it, especially in person and goes, oh, wow, is because you recognize how big a difference it makes to the exercise experience. And therefore, whether that's for your own training or for your client's training, it, it can make a huge difference. Now, I don't think that has to mean it makes night and day difference in some senses. It's not like, well, before I went and did any biomechanics study, all I did was squat, bench and deadlift. Uh, and after biomechanics, I never did those exercises again because they were awful. So like, no, you, you just start to recognize, okay, those exercises have their pros and cons, as do all exercises. These ones are useful for these people. These are the forces that are involved in that. This is what this exercise exposes this individual to. Is that appropriate for them? Yeah, 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 yeah. All the kind of the rest of the stuff that, that runs off that. So it just sort of opens your eyes to maybe why some of the exercises you were using before you got into biomechanics were effective for you or weren't, why that exercise that, you know, elite FTS and T Nation and whatever you were reading to get your education back in the day were, in, you know, these big giant powerlifty dudes kept insisting to grow chest bench press. And yet when I do it, it seems to fucking hurt my shoulder. Deadlift seems fine. I get on well with the deadlift, but that squat, ugh, once I get above about 140, just seems to niggle my back and my hips and, Yet that's what I have to do to grow my quads. And I had no way of evaluating that otherwise. And even if you were to look in, you know, in the research, if you hadn't done any biomechanics, the only thing you can go and look at is EMG and go, what was the EMG say? Well, it says this exercise has more output in this muscle than this one. And like, you go, that's basically, that is as far as your analysis can go because you don't have a tool to evaluate shit. So you're basically reliant on other people just giving you crap to go, this is going to be good and this isn't. And so biomechanics was really the first thing that opened my eyes to, oh, I can see, I can see and I can explore why this exercise is really great for this person and sucks for me. I can see why a back squat for me, great at growing my ass and my adductors, <laughs> terrible at growing my quads. I can, I can see it. I can understand that and go, ah, that makes total sense. And the great thing with it, it's, it's completely in line with the laws of physics. Mm. And the great thing with the laws of physics, they supersede all, uh, let's call it exercise science, because the laws of physics govern the world. 
And they're really foundational. They're very well studied. If Newtonian mechanics, though not perfect, or we wouldn't have had Einsteinian and general relativity and quantum mechanics and all that kind of shit that has nothing to do with anything we need to do as, as, uh, as train, trainers and trainees. If Newtonian mechanics is still good enough for us to, you know, shoot cannons and launch rockets a little bit and actually function at a pretty high level, we can rest assured that it governs you lifting a fucking dumbbell. <laughs> so I, that's the way I think we, we need a foundation in biomechanics before almost anything else, because it's so well tested that if your, your exercise science or your EMG thing or your whatever you want to bring to the table conflicts with foundational physics, your thing is wrong. This is too well studied, too well established for the odds to be now gravity's wrong, right? Or the concept of torque to be wrong. So it's not, that isn't what's happening. So we, I think we need that as almost our, our start point that we can then layer on things. So with that, it, did it change everything? No, I still do bicep curls. I still do some tricep pushdowns. I, I change the way I perform them ever so slightly. I line things up a little bit differently. Some exercises I just don't do anymore. Can't tell you the last time I did a bench press. Um, and you certainly add, I think, more tools to the toolbox. But that doesn't mean, you know, previously, well, previously, if I would write two to four sets for a beginner client and I liked auto-regulation because it gave the, the client in front of me the ability to, well, look, recovery isn't static, is it, right? Last night, you might have slept better than normal. You might have fallen out with your boyfriend and got dumped. Uh, you might be stressed about your job. You might have eaten like shit. I have no idea. You're but what I do know is, for most clients, unless they're high end, and even then sometimes, their recovery isn't static. It's not like every single day they're in the same place. And if your recovery isn't static, then the training stimulus on any given day shouldn't be a, uh, a predetermined thing because I don't know where you're going to be on that particular day. And so if you're feeling Herculean and warrior-like and you're awesome and in a great place, hit the four sets. If you're feeling like garbage and like, oh, I can barely be here, do two. And if you're really, really bad, don't fucking turn up. <laughs> if you're somewhere in between, do three. So I still like auto-regulation for a lot of gen pop clients. Still like it for certain other clients as well. So has that changed? No, I still think that's a pretty good thing. Uh, in terms of total volume across a week, you know, we have this idea from a bunch of research, 12 to 20 working sets per muscle group per week. While I don't think that has to be um, a, a completely set and given thing because and I'm, sure, I'm sure we can talk about those bits there's issues with how we measure volume there's issues with how we measure proximity to failure and what that means for the volume that we do but even if we accept that there's some give and take in there I actually still think somewhere in that 12 to 20 working sets per week region is a pretty good place for most people I don't see a reason just because it isn't perfect to therefore think well therefore the right answer is miles away no, you just go, okay, there's, there's some issues with this. We don't have to sit, stick to it specifically. So has that changed? No. Has it changed the way I interact in a coaching way and the way I try and get on with my client and, and how I interact with them in a psychological sense, in a personal sense? No, right? Uh, has it changed my understanding of disordered eating and, and psych-related kind of things that I have a bunch of history in? No. <laughs> so has it changed a bunch of the other stuff? Yeah, it's changed my, my toolkit for, for working with clients in the training realm, in the gym. And fundamentally, if we are personal trainers, that is the foundation of our job. But in lots of ways, you know, it, it's only one part of the toolkit if you're a coach, just like plenty of other stuff. That was a long way around, right? <laughs> <laughs> that was perfect. And what I find, like, when I started learning about it initially is obviously I got so excited about all this stuff that 
I failed to learn how to translate it into a client. I would just learn it and then deliver it in the same way. But then I've realized that you do have to sculpt it and shape it to make it applicable to the clients that they care, they're interested and it's going to suit them. Like there's no point in me saying a moment arm is this and torque is this and just tell my client that exactly because they're going to be like, what am I going to do with this information? That's not useful to me. So that's the hard bit is the translation there. So how have you, how have you gone about that? When did you start discovering that was an issue and how, <laughs> and how have you tried to address it? I think a lot of it, a lot of it was like Instagram content is putting it out exactly as I learned it and it not really being um, like touching home to anyone specifically because they, they don't have a pain point there. They didn't have a problem to solve and things like that. Um, but in terms of clients, I think it's more when you like trying to resolve an issue or something they're struggling with or something to optimize and, and being kind of specific to what, what they need rather than just kind of spewing out information because you learned it and you think it's cool. Um, it's very much like client focused in that respect. Yeah. I mean, I think that's such a truism of coaching in general. And, you know, I'm not saying this from a position where I haven't done all those things too. (laughs) (laughs) We we definitely have, you know, I've, God, I remember getting really excited about biomechanics stuff and taking sets to like the cleaners and just being like, oh, we can't really define failure properly because look, <laughs> doing all these things. And then having a client who'd been a client for six, seven years, kind of that point, an in-person client of mine, Chris. And uh, she was like, Paul, I'm enjoying these sessions like less. <laughs> because every set is just so hard. <laughs> And I was like, ah, (laughs) I'm projecting what I'm excited about and what I like onto my client. And again, super normal. We all do it, right? Like it's hard to not, people talk about what they're passionate about and, (laughs) and that's fine sometimes. uh, But we do have to recognize that we're here providing a service and it is about the client and what the client wants and whether or not this is the right tool for the client at this moment in time. And if you think that the tool you have is the right tool for every single client, you have an ideology and not an actual toolkit. So check yourself and let's start making sure that this is actually right for, for that for that person. And just as you kind of said with that, sometimes that's starting with specifying well, who is this client? What is it, is, is it that they struggle with? And how do I communicate on their terms, not on my terms it's like okay if I, I deal with clients who've been going to Weight Watchers for for 20 years or what have you I don't need to say shit like rectus abdominis <laughs> right? I can just say abs yeah. I can say tones that what do they say they say tummy they say belly cool we'll oh. use those yeah I'm gonna say belly like like adipose tissue I'm gonna say belly fat yeah. right or whatever that thing is and there's some people like, hey. it's like no fuck off look if you don't get the client's attention by communicating in terms they understand they're not going to know why the shit you're talking about matters. And they're going to it. And this, you might be able to get away with it a bit more when you're talking one-to-one person's right in front of you. You can do those kind of things because you can explain and go through them. But when you're talking on social media, if that person hasn't understood a couple of the words that you've just said, guess what they're going to do? Scroll. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and keep going. If you don't grab someone's attention and keep it, it doesn't matter how much you know, because no one's paying you any fucking attention. So like social media is first and foremost about attention because mm-hmm. Without it, you can't communicate all the awesome stuff that makes you a great trainer. And you, you do have to accept that as part of the gig. You might not like it, but I don't care whether you like it because it's reality. Mm. It's a bit like saying, I don't like gravity. I'm like, cool, what do you want to do about it? Yeah, yeah? No. right, cool, let's accept it. The sooner we can accept it, the sooner we can move on and actually work with it rather than try and deny what is. Yeah, I think that is something a lot of trainers experience 
on social media is they're almost trying to impress other coaches instead of appeal to their clients. I've definitely been, um, I've, I've done this as well. Like um, you put out information that you're like, oh, this sounds really smart. Like everyone's gonna be real impressed with me, but then no client is gonna, they're, they're not going to associate with it. They're not going to appreciate it because they don't understand it. They don't know how it's, how is it relevant to me? And how is that gonna help my training and build my physique? Like it's definitely something a lot of us have been guilty of. Yeah, look, if, if, I think we often make this mistake from our little bubble, from our echo chamber, that we presume our client's feeds look like our feed. And that depends on who your client is, to be honest, right? They might. like. So most of my clients are trainers themselves. I specialize in that kind of thing. So I am talking to trainers. but And so maybe I can get away with using a bit more technical language than if I was to talk to 25-year-old lads who want to go to Ibiza and look great. Okay, cool. That's that's going to be maybe a different thing. And if you're the trainer listening to this, that doesn't just because we talk about communicating in different ways, that doesn't mean the tools you use are fundamentally any different, right? The tool others that I use for, you know, if I've got a 43 year old mother of two or a 23 year old trying to get shredded or whoever, well, the tools I'm going to use are some kind of nutrition shit, some kind of training shit and some kind of getting to know them shit. Cool. That's true of every single one of them. But again, we're going to come back to this thing. If I haven't first got their attention and made them think this person understands me and gets me and can help me, and that means talking to them in their language, well, it doesn't matter what toolkit that you've kind of got. So it's just one of those those things that's a, a, a huge given and often missed. And so then if we, we've got to come at it from that perspective of going, how do I communicate on their terms? Are my audience other trainers? No. Okay, but I went on this training thing where I was taught by people who are teaching trainers and I was around other trainers. And so they communicated to me in those terms. And so those are the terms I know now. So they're the ones I'm going to pass on to my other clients who aren't trainers. So no, 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 no. Right. What you need to do at that moment is interpret the stuff that you learned from other trainers, which might involve more technical language and go, cool. What are these concepts? What are these ideas? How do I translate them to my audience? And so rather than talking about profiles, maybe you just go, cool, this exercise is hard here and easy there. Mm. And this one is different, it's hard there and easy here. Sweet. Use them both. Cool. Gravy. You don't have to necessarily go any harder than that. Mm. Now, in an actual session, when you're already coaching someone, maybe you can. Maybe you can slowly lower those things if you get the feeling that your client is interested in those things. Some clients really want to know the details. Other clients couldn't give two shits and they just want to be told what to do. And some people exist somewhere in between that kind of thing. So it's always just them and, and how do we talk to them? And so, yeah, that's, that's pretty much that. I've waffled enough. Eh? That's okay. <laughs> yeah, I definitely, I have like different types of clients. Obviously I have attracted some like scientist females because I'm a scientist female and they love learning. They want to know all this stuff. And others are like, I just want to get in shape. Just tell me what to do and I'll do that. So you definitely have to mold yourself depending on, how they like to learn and what they how they like to be coached because obviously like we all like to be coached in different ways as well um, yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely it's, it's not that thing as well like you know i obviously so i teach as i said before teach a lot of trainers mentor a lot of trainers teach trainers exercise mechanics etc like me. and you might yeah right yeah, yeah. And you might think that therefore that means oh paul must talk in complex terms no, I actually, one of the things that most trainers who come to me say is they like the fact I put it into shit they can understand, right? And if that's true of teaching trainers, it's definitely going to be true of, of teaching gen pop people. So, you know, we, we hear so many terms in biomechanics that I think often we're afraid to say we don't know what they mean. Like someone will rattle off tangential loading and keep talking and you're, you're like, hang on, what? 
what the hell does that mean? And then they'll explain it with it. So, oh, so you know, it's a force of perpendicular thing. Your explanation included another note. What's perpendicular? <laughs> I've heard it, but def- like, do you, can you define it? And not the like technical textbook definition. Could you draw it? Mm-hmm. Like that's the the kind of bit with some of this stuff that I've always tried to keep in mind is I don't care if you know the words. I care that you know the concepts. Okay, you know what they describe. Because look, if I try to teach biomechanics in Italian, I can't because I don't <laughs> know the words. But they're just the words. I know the concepts, right? So I could still kind of teach it. I just have to find whatever the language for that was. I wouldn't have to relearn the concept. Learn the concept. I don't care what the words are. They're just fucking words. They're labels for it. Mm. It's the shit at the heart of it that really matters. And it's the same in, like, let's say you're learning anatomy. Anatomy can get really intimidating. There's lots of long words. There's lots of things that shit attaches to, and they're all like tubercles and tuberosities. And what the fuck is that, right? And <laughs> I always actually remember tubers and tuberosities as potatoes. Because, yeah. <laughs> because tuber means potato. is <laughs> like root potato kind of thing. And actually a tuber or a tuberosity uh, or tubercle is a bumpy bit of bone that shoots out that you get a, a bunch of muscular attachments on. And so I was like, that's a little potato on a bone that muscle attached to. So that's how I remember <laughs> tubercles and tuberosities and all that kind of stuff. But I don't care that you can tell me that the biceps insert onto the radial tuberosity. I care that you can just point to it and go, it's there. Yeah. Right. And then the long head comes up and attaches onto the supraglenoid tubercle. I don't care that you can name that because I've been in classes where people can name it and they can't point to it. <laughs> that's the wrong fucking way around. That's how you pass your level three PT, sir, is you just... Yeah, you just learn random shit that you're like, well, this doesn't mean anything. And what's the point in that? That's just an exercise in intellectual masturbation. And we're (laughs) trainers. That's not what we do. We are practical preachers first. We have more in common with engineers than physicists, right? It's about what we do. I'm not just interested in writing maths equations on a blackboard. And this is someone, I like maths equations. (laughs) I like writing shit on the blackboard and, and playing with that kind of stuff. But you've got to keep it in mind that we are practical creatures first. And so don't, I really would, obviously you're going to have to learn some words, but if you've just learned the words and you know in your heart that you're not really clear on what those words describe, you can't show them, you can't get to grips with them, you can't make them tangible in your hands, you can't draw them out, then you don't know it yet. Don't rest on the fact you can repeat that the moment arm is the perpendicular distance between the axis and the line of force. Cool, I get that, but you just learned that by rote. Can you draw it? Can you show it me on this picture? Can you show it me on this exercise? If no, I don't care that you know the words, right? And if you can show me it, I don't care that you don't know the words, right? It's, it's the concepts, they come first, we're practical first. You've got to keep that shit in mind. Yeah, and how do you think, like, what, how would you suggest someone to start then? Like, if they are listening mm-hmm. to this and they're like, I have no idea about this stuff, I just, I want to start learning. Because people always ask me, what book should I read for mechanics? Yeah. And I always advise them not to because it's not going to mean anything. It's not going to have any relevance from a yep. book until yep. they learn how it's going to be applied. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. Like there are no books. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually writing one because I want to solve this oh, issue. Oh, cool. uh, uh, You know, biomechanics for beginners, really. Like a practical guide for PTs. Um, because, you know, usually when you get a biomechanics book, they're textbooks. So they're used as a reference for students whilst being taught by lecturers in a thing. They're, they're very rarely something you're just expected to learn off by themselves. They're a great reference tool. But reference tools are only useful once you understand what it is you're looking at and then how to go and refer back to those things. And they start with, you know, they'll have a whole chapter 
on Newtonian forces and stuff before you get, and none of it seems to like refer back to how this is relevant to the PT because that's not what the book's for so you might have several chapters before you get onto anything that resembles anything that you recognize as something you might do and i think that's a, a big mistake with stuff when we learn concepts we have to learn them uh, in a field that's relevant right learning is best done when we scaffold ideas to ideas we already understand so i try and use things like seesaws and doors and diving boards and things people have an experience with when it comes to yeah, exactly. Yeah, I've got on a lift before, put myself on it, and got it. Like, let's oh, look at. That was a good one. I liked that one. <laughs> right, because um, you're trying to put it into something that people can understand already, or you're trying. I often try and pique interest. So again, we're, we're grabbing attention so that we can create a moment of curiosity, because you need that curiosity to be there to drive you through the learning process. If you're not curious about it and it isn't interesting and isn't exciting, and I don't mean that at every single moment because that's unrealistic, but at least in the beginning, ah, the odds of you sticking with it are going to be slim. So if I can show you something where you go, ooh, that's weird, <laughs> or ooh, that felt different, and you might not know why yet, but that's cool because I created a moment where you went, ah, ah, right? Like, what's, what's going on with that? I always use the example, like, you know, I was a trainer for ages before uh, I could answer the question, why is a dumbbell lat raise hardest when your arm is out to the side rather than held down by your side. And I remember Michael asking that and I was like, I don't actually know. <laughs> and that's not very good because I've been a trader for ages. Um, and it's like, well, well did, the, did the dumbbell get heavier? Did your arm get heavier? Nope. Not, well, I don't think so. That would be weird if the, the you know, 10 kilo dumbbell that I had in my hand at the start was suddenly now 50 kilos when I, when I raised it up, that'd be weird. And yet, it's self-evidently true. Just try it. Stick your arm out at 90 degrees to your side. Like you're, like you're making the sort of letter T, right? Stick your arms out there and hold them there and see how long it takes before they burn. And then put them down by your sides and see how long it takes for them to burn down by your sides. The answer to that bit will be never, right? They're going to be there forever. And why? And I hated it. <laughs> I felt retarded that I didn't know the answer to that as to why. I was like, well, ooh. Yeah, no, well, clearly hasn't gone heavier, but it is heavier. Why is it heavier? And that led down into an understanding of that term Holly just used earlier, this moment arm thing. And I was like, the hell is that? And you can understand it like a seesaw. It's a, it's basically, in my head, it's leverage. When you go and use a crowbar and you hold at the furthest end of the crowbar rather than right by the sort of joint with it, because that's not how you would use a crowbar, right? You create greater leverage over the thing that you're, you're using. You've, you've taken advantage of a distance. If you use a hammer versus a sledgehammer, what's the main difference? The length of the arm that you hold. And therefore, the sledgehammer produces way more force because it's got a greater leverage. If we think of a door, the door handle is at the end of the door. It's not right next to the hinge because it would have crap leverage over the hinge. And it'd be really awkward and difficult to open the door. So, OK, yeah, I can start to see those things. And then, OK, well, if I sat on a seesaw, there's an axis in the middle. This thing that we're seesawing over. And... If I sit opposite my mate, let's say we're the same weight as each other, let's use real easy things and assume we're both 100 kilos, why not? And we're at the same distance. If we sit the same distance and we're the same weight, the seesaw will just stay where it is, be nice and balanced. What happens if one of us moves closer in? If one of us moves closer in, suddenly that person's going to start going up into the sky because they have the same weight as each other, but their leverage, their distance from the middle of the seesaw has decreased. And this is this thing that Holly touched on earlier called a torque. It's a, a turning force, effectively. How effective a force rotates 
something. And that's dependent on both the force, the weight and the distance. And so if the forces were the same, but they have different distances, they create different torques. And we see that in action because we've all been on a seesaw. You've all been on a seesaw and moved in and out and seen what happened. If you play on one with a kid, the kid might be on the far end and you'll nudge your way in until you guys can balance out. I can balance a baby with Eddie Hall if you give me a long enough seesaw, <laughs> right? It's, it's, it's always a combination of these things. And so with a dumbbell lat raise, the reason that it's hardest way out to the side versus down by the side is this thing called a moment arm. This leverage, this distance, no different to a seesaw, increases and is at its maximum when my arm is out to the side versus when it's down by my side. You're like, oh, okay, cool. Okay, and if I can start to see that, can I take advantage of it? Can I manipulate these invisible distances, moment arms, to create different exercise experiences where I create a challenge for the muscle at this length and the challenge for the muscle at this, at this length or a challenge just for this muscle different to this muscle. And okay, these different distances to say hips and knees and whatever joints we're talking about are what create the challenge or the differences in challenge for me versus Holly when we squat. And it was fundamentally the answer of why the back squat was never going to grow my quads very well. I create a really shitty moment, moment arm, distance, to my knee joint versus my hip joint. And so the torque to my ass is huge. The <laughs> challenge being presented to those muscles is large. And the challenge being presented to my knees is quite small. And so the muscular demand that is responding to that reflects the physical reality of these of these differences and you're like ah cool sweet i don't even remember how this question started anymore yeah, neither do I. but uh but here we go so there you go that's, that feels like a wrap up to that point but um what i was going to add there is like all of us subconsciously kind of know this stuff like none of us place a door handle beside the hinge and none exactly. of us will use a crowbar at the at the very top like we all yeah. do this subconsciously because it, we know it gives us that mechanical advantage but that's just translating it into exercise then because i was like as a scientist, when I started lifting weights, I I was doubting it. I was like, there's no way it could just be simple as lifting this from here to here and that's it. Like there must be more to it. Like it's hardly that that's all you need to think about. Um, and when I was in secondary school and university, like I never really was interested in physics at all. I just, it completely bored me because I had no way to apply it to make it interesting to my life. Um, but then as soon as I started to learn about the mechanics side of things, I got so interested in physics because finally I had a use for it and it was benefiting me somehow. So as you said, like the application is completely, like you need to be able to, make it relevant to what you're passionate about and what what you want to do uh, because before it had no relevance to me and I just I had no interest I never did it um so yeah I was just a, I was a biology chemistry girl and I just neglected the physics but now I love it so that's nice yeah it, it, it's those things unless we see how it's relevant to us it, it just doesn't matter and biomechanics taught poorly just sounds to me like someone mouth fucked a thesaurus. Yeah. They're just throwing out big long words that confuse people. And it's it's a shame because as you rightly said, we all have experience with biomechanics. Biomechanics is just the study of forces applied to anatomy. And that's everything. <laughs> you sitting on that chair, you lifting a dumbbell, you going for a walk, it's all biomechanics because there's forces everywhere and you've got anatomy meeting it. And so you have experience with the physical realm. You kind of know it. If you're an adult, you know it intuitively because you spent the 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, however old you happen to be, interacting with it. You might not know the terms, but you know these things. And that's where you get, that's one of the reasons you can create these really nice aha moments in biomechanics because you, and that's what I mean by scaffolding ideas to the shit you already know. Because you already know some of this. You've already experienced it. I, I use, you know, I give this one away, but I, whenever I'm teaching in person, 
and talking about that that lat raise issue and trying to get people to understand this moment arm thing i i, I pre present a challenge which is who reckons they can lat raise a two kilo dumbbell because it feels like a really easy thing to do because presumably anyone on one of these courses has exercised the whole bunch and is familiar with stuff and they're like of course i can although admittedly by this point in, in the day people are usually skeptical and wary that i'm laying a trap right yeah. uh, so so <laughs> exactly so you get a bit of a mixed response in which case i'll usually mock them and be like no one here reckons they can lat raise a two kilo dumbbell I'm like, that's pathetic you should go should be embarrassed uh and then i'll usually try and pick on the biggest person i can find there be like you don't reckon you can you can lat raise two two kilos come on out right so we, we get the person out and you know i've got the dumbbell by me but what i'll also have set up is another two kilo dumbbell that i've attached to the end of a broomstick and or whatever stick i can find for this particular kind of demo and i'm like right lat raise this and what this person has to do is hold the end of the broomstick in their hand with the two kilo dumbbell at the far end of the broomstick so i've effectively you know doubled the length of their arm doubled this distance this leverage thing and try it and then go and i've yet to meet anyone who can do it <laughs> now I'm sure a lot of egos have been bashed in the process <laughs> yeah Right. And it, it and it, the fun part is that a lot of people then come and try like <laughs> and not kind of get anywhere. And even if you gave me again, bring me Eddie Hall, bring me Hapthor Bjornsson, bring me the strongest people, you know. And if I get a big enough broomstick, they won't be able to lift two kilos. I guarantee that's just the reality of it. At some point, there is a talk that is too much for them to overcome. And that's only ever. Remember, it's contingent on force and distance or some moment arm weight and moment arm. And so. You know, even with a small weight, I don't care. If I times it by a gajillion distance, it creates a massive challenge uh, for these things to deal with. And so that's that's the fun part of these things. You get to put them into aha moments or, ooh, that's weird, or that was fun, or that was different, or that's a great way of seeing it. And that's what we have to do as educators is scaffold these concepts that are new and are different and take a bit of time to get used to, because of course they do but scaffold them to things we already intuitively understand from our experience of being alive. And we can speed that process up so much. We can make it seem relevant. We can create excitement amongst trainers, that this stuff isn't just about big, long, complex shit words, but it's actually about stuff. Oh, I can use that. I get that. That makes sense. That's the game. Yeah. Like one of the, one of the ones that kind of point out, I know when we were doing some work in Crayford and we were doing the hip thrust and you were telling me to kind of focus on pulling my feet back towards me to kind of change the resultant so that you get more of a glute challenge that way because I know a lot of people say when they do hip thrust they feel their quads a lot yep. um, and not their glutes so it's kind of those kind of practical things but is there any other kind of things that are like aha moments for clients that you find when you change a certain thing or you place the intent, intent somewhere else yeah I mean you can probably pick out a, a whole bunch of them so Depends on which, what we're kind of going with. One of the easiest ones for, sometimes you'll see the seatbelt, right? A lot of us like using seatbelts at this point. Sometimes people are like, why? I love a seatbelt. <laughs> and, you know, we, we all love a seatbelt because apparently we're, you know, sexual weirdos. If you get into biomechanics, you will end up with a gym bag that does make you look like a dominatrix. That yeah, is it'll be like a red room in a bag that you'll bring around. Yeah, 100%. It, it, it does just slowly happen. And so, you know, I apologize in advance if you get into biomechanics. That is going to happen. You're going to have to accept that that happens. Welcome to the club. Uh, we're into some weird shit and we like strapping each other down. So in the, in the leg extension, depending on the type of leg extension, this is more pronounced than in others. But just stick, you know, put the whole stack on don't hold on to the hands and shove against it and, and just see what happens and what you'll pretty much find unless you're 
enormous and the stack <laughs> is quite light is you will start lifting out of the seat. You will lever yourself out of the seat effectively. So like, okay, well, that's, <laughs> that's going to be a problem. It'd be like doing a lap pull down with more than you weigh without the restraint for your legs, right? If you try and do a lap pull down with more than you, you go, <laughs> you're doing a pull up yeah. effectively, right? You need the restraint to effectively make your side heaviest so that the other thing can move. Just a general rule of, uh, of the laws of forces. If you're lighter than the other thing, the other thing ain't moving, you're moving, right? And that's what happens in, in, a, in a pull up, right? A pull up and a pull down in the same motion effectively. It's just that in the pull up, that whole bit of metal and thing you're attached to outweighs you quite a bit <laughs> and it isn't going to go anywhere. And in the other one, that's, that's not the case. And so you can actually pull that thing down. But so in the, the leg extension, one of the cool things that you'll see with studies, if you were to ever go, you know, if anyone listening to this wants to go and see a picture of this, Google maximum voluntary isometric contraction, right? And just click on the images within that. And you'll see a bunch of images of people strapped into what looks like almost rally cars. And yet what they're actually measuring is how much force they can produce in one position. Use the leg extension as an example, because we've been on the leg extension. You're like, why have they got shoulder restraints and like a five point harness and a lap restraint kind of going on just to measure force output of the quad? That seems weird. Surely they could just hold on and what happened. Well, it turns out that when you do these two differences, i.e. you just hold onto the handles that are by the side of the leg extension and shove as hard as you can, and then you take away that and you strap someone into their rally car and get them to shove. There's a difference. You can produce more force when you're restrained a bunch than when you have to essentially create your own restraint through your own muscular output by holding on. And we call this, well, what sort of what I learned now was, was a juggle. The more things your nervous system has to coordinate and juggle, the lower its force output becomes. And that's why we see this stuff in studies. Cool, we can take advantage of that quite easily. I'm just like, sweet, I'll get a seatbelt here. You know, I, okay, I won't create the full five-point harness, right? But I can create something pretty damn similar to it, or at least a lot better than just my own thing. Seatbelt myself in and get someone to start actually going through that motion and shoving into that thing going, how's that feel now? You can use the same thing. I actually did the same thing for, for my girlfriend, Laura, last week at some point. We were back in her hometown of Bath at the, the gym that she goes to there. And there's a back extension. Laura has historically struggled to grow her glutes, um, and gets a lot of stuff spinally rather than glutey in things that you would normally go, ah, I thought that was a glute exercise. People keep telling me that. Now, this is improving. It's taken a, a bunch of work to identify stuff. A lot of things to identify are best done in person because you can explore them more than you can online. That's just one of the realities of stuff, especially when it comes to tweaking um, subtle bits of execution that are very difficult to see on a camera. <laughs> uh, we can absolutely still do that, and online checking should involve that type of thing. But let's not pretend that getting hands on and being able to explore and test a few bits and pieces isn't always going to be a bit superior to that. It is. Uh, and so we're able to do this. Thing. But with the, the sort of spinal extension, back extension motion, um, there's a if you imagine a pad that goes into roughly where your shoulder blades are and then you're sat on this seat and you lean backwards against it, you could unroll against it and actually do like a spinal kind of roll like the opposite of an ab crunch and work your spinal directors that way or if you keep your spine still and hinge back at the hip you can treat this as a hip extension where your upper body moves and your lower body stays kind of still the problem for that one is again holding on and as that thing gets heavier the hips start to lift out as well seat back that guy together do a couple of little tweaks and suddenly we've got this oh that feels great on my glutes going on within that so cool, we can use seatbelts for a couple of different things 
um, within those and start playing around. Often one of the big ones for AHA stuff, something like a, a lying, slightly inclined cuffed lat raise suddenly feels very different to just a normal dumbbell lat raise. Or even, you know, if someone's used to their dumbbell lat raise, get them to lay on their side, just flat on the floor and go try it now. It feels completely different to the normal lat raise. It's now hardest when your arm is actually by your side and essentially weightless when your arm is up at that 90 degree T shape that we spoke about kind of previously, because our orientation to gravity is actually changed by 90 degrees ourselves. Uh, so we've essentially flipped where those forces meet us. And you could do something in between and go 45 degree lean and, and roll through those guys. One of the biggest ones when working with new people, I find that makes a huge difference to their connection is just slowing things down. Mm. Um, and actually tempo considerations get contentious in places and we can certainly overemphasize them, I think. However, what shouldn't be, what isn't even up for debate is that tempo affects forces. Forces aren't static. Forces equals mass times acceleration for those people who remember their Newton, right? F equals MA. And if you change the, so the mass isn't going to change, whatever you're dealing with load-wise, that's the dumbbell again. But if I move it at different speeds, I'm, I'm actually putting in different accelerations to what's going on. I'm changing effectively the speed that these things move at. And that changes the F. M times a different A gives me a different F, right? So the forces change as they go through these things. And again, we're all familiar with that. And if you're not, thought experiment for me, lay on the ground, place a 10 kilo dumbbell on your chest, happy days. Now lay on the ground. Let me stand above you and drop a 10 kilo plate onto your chest. Tell me they hit you with the same force. They don't, right? The force required to stop an object is dependent on the speed it's moving at. We actually call that momentum. Mass times velocity, speed in a direction, gives us a momentum. We're all kind of familiar with that, right? And that's why M and V, mass and velocity, see, we can talk technically if we want to. You don't have to simplify everything, know who you're talking to. And we can play with these things. But just because you can talk mathematically doesn't mean you should, right? But if we wanted to explore and we go, okay, that's why a bullet has a giant amount of momentum, even though it's a really small mass. And the reason for that is it's got a giant velocity. Or we could have something moving really slowly, but it's a fucking lorry. It also has a shitload of momentum, right? Low velocity, now giant mass. Both things require a load of force to stop them. Worst case, you've got giant mass, giant velocity, you're fucked. Uh, yeah. And then <laughs> that's the end of your life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So what isn't up for debate is that the speed something moves at affects the forces. That's foundational physics. You'd learn that in you know, end of high school, start of A-level kind of physics. It's just a given. And what's always struck me as weird is what is definitely accepted in hypertrophy, muscle growth, is that mechanical tension is the primary driver of it. Whether muscle damage and metabolic stress affect them is up for debate. But really what doesn't seem to be up for debate is that mechanical tension is at the heart of it. And tension, by the way, tension uh, is a description of a force. So compressive forces are forces that smush things together if you drive your hands together, you're compressing something. Tensile forces pull something apart. So when you try and snap something by pulling it apart, we would call that a tensile force. Tension is a tensile force. So mechanical tension is describing effectively a force that's pulling your muscle apart. That kind of makes sense, right? We're responding to that thing and we're almost pulling our muscles apart or that's what the thing is, is trying to do. Well, if our muscles are responding to the world around us, because we said that biomechanics is forces as they meet anatomy. And if those forces we just said are contingent on the speed things travel at, because they are, then surely 
the response of our muscle tissues, mechanical tension, which is responding to the external world's force demands, would be affected by the speed that things move at because that affects the forces themselves. How that is contentious or not an obvious point is beyond me, and yet it never comes up in anything, and it annoys the shit out of me. So that's a kind of thing within there of going, tempo has to have an impact. It has to have an impact. But at what speed differential does it have an impact is up for debate. So does moving at one second versus two seconds make a big difference? Does maybe, maybe not. Depends a little bit on the kit we're using and, and the mechanics of how those things are structured. But we could kind of go, there's probably not a huge difference between one second and two seconds. Is there a difference between one second and five seconds? Okay, now we're talking about bigger differences and stuff. Is there a difference between one second and 60 seconds? Yes, now we're talking about giant differences within that. 60 seconds might be too slow and a bit annoying and doesn't necessarily work. One second might be too quickly sometimes. We, we're finding where in this tempo debate does the difference lie? And we can't answer that without also including um, discussions of things like pulley systems, the length of levers. So what do I mean by the length of a lever? So if you've got a, you know, a, a stick and, you've, and it's going to spin around something. So there's a center, there's an axis in the middle of the stick. And you've got like a 10 meter stick sticking off the side of this axis that's going to spin around. We're going to place two balls on our stick. One ball is at a meter distance and the other ball is at 10 meters distance at the end of the stick. Well, one of the things about a stick is it's going to rotate at the same, call this angular change, right? So it's going to go 360 degrees is our, is our total spin. Well, if I take it 90 degrees, so it goes from horizontal to vertical, it's going to do that in the same time. The top of the stick and that meter position are going to get through 90 degrees and hit that at the same time, right? But the distance those balls traveled is quite different. A ball close at one meter to the axis did not go anywhere near as far as the ball at the far end, at the end of the 10 meter stick went to get to that position. The far end ball traveled a lot faster or traveled a lot further, but it traveled further in the same time. Distance, time, speed actually have a, a relationship to each other. If I travel a, a greater distance in the same amount of time, I must travel faster. If I travel, you know, one kilometer in an hour versus 10 kilometers an hour. Guess what? One of them was doing one kilometer an hour. The other one was doing 10 kilometers an hour. I was going at different speeds because I did both in an hour. Well, same thing with this, this tennis ball issue or this plate issue. And if we put that into a, a gym thing, we go, okay, instead of tennis ball, imagine you've got a weight plate spinning around an axis, a meter from the axis and another one, 10 meters from the axis. You're not going to find one at 10 meters. That'd be a stupidly large bit of kit, right? But let's assume that you've got these different distances of where the plates sit and spin around an axis. They therefore travel at different speeds around our axis. And again, we come back to forces are affected by accelerations. And when things travel effectively from zero to a certain position uh, within a certain period of time, they must have gone through different accelerations. So the forces themselves must also change. So even if we said one second versus two seconds, that still is contingent on the kit we're using as we go through this stuff as well. So it gets complicated. There's no hard and fast, short answer within this stuff. And, and again, I, that's just never accounted for within any of this jazz. But slowing things down, generally speaking, for beginner clients in particular, allows us to control stuff, to get to grips with it, to make sure are we feeling it where we want to feel it for this particular exercise. You don't always have to feel things exactly where you want to feel them. You know, plenty of people have gotten big without feeling 
deadlift in a particular place, but they still worked for them. So that's we shouldn't say you have to always have sensation in a particular area for shit to work. But if you've got stuff you struggle to grow with or struggle to connect with, then you, I need you to get some connection to it most likely. So slowing down allows us to connect to it. It lowers maybe some of the stress on joints. So if we've got injuries that we're working around and stuff we're trying to get, allows us to do that. If we're trying to just subtly change our positioning to line up our joints a little bit better with the forces, we can do that slower, much better than rapidly. Because again, when you move something rapidly, your ability to adjust stuff goes down the toilet. So it's those slowing shit down, using some seat belts, using some cuffs and some cables, they all start being... Uh, big game changes, but every exercise has its thing that you're going to be able to tweak depending on the person in front of you, how you see it and, and what they're going with. Yeah. That was a long answer. That's okay. Um, when you were saying kind of the, the tempo and the speed of movement thing, what I always think about is, you know, when you go and see those gym bros doing like a seated cable row with that tiny little attachment and they're like loafing the whole stack. And like at that point when they are doing that, that stack is basically weightless. So you think it's really impressive because they're doing the full stack, but they're not actually controlling a lot of that load. Like just inertia is doing it for them. Yeah. So, and you can see this again, like these are easy things to say, but you can show them. And I think that's always a crucial part. You know, if you get a luggage scale and attach a weight to it, so you can see just like you're weighing your suitcase, you put five kilos on the end of a, a luggage scale, attach it on with a daisy chain or something so that it doesn't just fall off the hook. Right. And, uh, then just move it around and look at the needle on the luggage scale. And what you'll find when you move nice and smoothly and slowly, that needle stays pretty static. Say, I think I said five kilos. It's going to stay roughly around five kilos. We have to say roughly because actually to overcome a load, I have to produce more than it. To hold it still, I produce equal to it. That's why it's staying still. And to lower it, I have to lose to it. So I actually produce less force. So you could say that to overcome the five, I have to produce more than five. To lose to it, I have to just produce less than it. To hold it, I have to produce five. That's a bit simplistic because we're actually not doing with force, we're doing with torque, as we said, but it doesn't matter. The concept will be fine, right? So if I move this thing, I'll see the needle move a little bit. But when it's moving relatively slowly, it doesn't move rapid. It doesn't change too much. The forces stay pretty constant. Then just start jerking it around and watch what happens to the needle. And you're just going to see this needle dance around all over the place. The forces are changing rapidly. And as Holly said, if you launch an object aggressively enough, think about this. Uh, take a tennis ball, launch it into the sky. What does it do? It shoots up at its fastest just as it's left your hand because you've been part of the greatest amount of force. And it keeps going up and it's slowly being slowed, decelerated by gravity, right? And eventually it reaches its peak, a point in time where it hits the very top of its arc that it's going to go up through from your throat. And if you could snapshot that, that moment right there, the force of gravity pushing down and the momentum that you'd given it shoving up basically equal each other. And that's why it's just there and it doesn't go up any higher and it doesn't go lower. It just hovers there for a fraction of a moment. But in that moment, it's weightless. Zero. Everything counts as that. And you're like, sweet. And now it starts dropping back down for us again. So you could take that same principle. And when I launch a dumbbell or a barbell up or whatever it happens to be, if I've really launched it, there's a moment where it basically, as Holly said, becomes very light. Might not be completely weightless, but it's certainly not what it started as. And you can test these things by just chucking luggage scales on handles and jump, you know, pull on them and see what the number does. And you can see it for yourself. Um, and so, again, those are ones that just they're not up for debate. Now, you might make an argument, depending on how the person, like, everything has its limits, right? Like, so if some people are super jerking it, leaning back, doing a whole bunch of crap. OK, that's probably not going to be any good. But we've maybe Holly said before, maybe you've heard this before, if you listen to this, that pulling things 
we want them to get lighter as we pull back. We basically get weaker at the back end of our pull uh, than we do when my arms are out in front of us. Well, if I don't have a bit of kit like a seated rope that actually drops off in any way, that gets lighter to match my getting weaker, I could, no, there's no way of getting it precise, but I could use the speed that I lift that to effectively change the profile. Maybe pulling relatively quickly through that to some degree uh, allows us to drop off in a, and then pause and almost hold it. So I actually have to catch that thing slightly uh, in that position before lowering it down. What I don't want to see is rapid, 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 right? So the eccentric and the concentric are both fucking launched, uh, minimal turnaround time. What I might want to see within that is a rapid concentric, let's say a second, a pause at the end of the concentric where I almost catch the weight and hold it, and then a controlled descent from there and repeat that. I can create a profile through a seated row where that might be acceptable. But yeah, mostly what you see is people leaning back, using their hips to do a load of it, launching the damn thing. There's no real control. It's not hitting exactly where they would like it to hit uh, and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, you see loads of it. Yeah, it's interesting. And like, you'd love everyone to just have an awareness and understanding of how these things work. And that's kind of like what my my goal is to just make it more understandable both to clients and to trainers themselves to understand why these things are not necessarily efficient and why you want to improve them because I think there is there is still that stigma in like the big like bodybuilder world that all this stuff is just stupid and you know you just can't lift heavy enough and you only reverse band things because you're weak and stuff like that so it's trying to under overcome all of that kind of thing as well yeah those things are tough um and I, look, I think a bunch of the biomechanics world doesn't help because it feels like it shits on a lot of the stuff that has historically been used. Mm. And, you know, there's an arrogance in that because what we should be also recognizing is some of these people got massive doing these things we call inefficient. Mm. So oh, if they were that inefficient, surely they shouldn't be massive. Mm. <laughs> now, obviously that's simplified. You know, we have plenty of enhancements and genetically gifted people and all the other stuff going into it. And we can never say that, just because someone got to an exceptional point that they couldn't have gotten a bit better by doing something a little differently. We, we obviously can't say that, but what we shouldn't also do is go, but they definitely would have got better if they'd have done it my way. Cause there's an arrogance in that too. That is not, you know, it is not a given just because we think these things are better. doesn't mean they definitely will have the outcome that we want for me. Biomechanics is just about having more tools in the toolbox uh, to kind of work with it and go, okay, if this giant person in front of me loves the seated row with the narrow handle and we like, well, it doesn't let me get into full retraction. It causes me to get into internal rotation and the pulley system on it means it's one-to-one -one and that's not dropping off at all. And there's no chest restraint here. So yeah, yeah, I get all that. But this dude in front of me is pretty jacked, gets a good connection with it and has a, you know, a Dorian Yates back. <laughs> like it would be, how arrogant is that to be like, oh no, they'll definitely get better results doing it my way. You know, maybe it is the fact that without that chest support and restraint effectively, that they're having to use a bunch of their erectors in a way that they don't have to use without that kind of thing. And actually, that's beneficial to them in their overall thing. Um, maybe the fact they actually have to launch it so aggressively out of that position and they drop it so rapidly. Because if you drop it and have to catch it, you have to produce more force in that bottom position than if you slowly lowered it to it in that bottom position. You don't have to produce much force in the shortened position because it was you didn't really control it. It just fucking fell. Uh, but you're going to have to produce more force in that lengthened position. 
And if the research, as it starts to suggest and is suggesting that there are benefits from training in length and positions from muscular hypertrophy that don't occur, called stretch-mediated hypertrophy, that don't occur in short positions, maybe there's some benefit to that. I don't think we should be as arrogant as sometimes the biomechanics world can be. And I think it's that that puts off a lot of the bigger uh, dudes in the old school kind of way of, of, of doing things. And so I, th I think we could do a better job of um, meeting them where they're at with it. No one likes it when they're made to feel stupid. Mm. And I think a lot of the biomechanics world wants to treat big jack people as though they're stupid. And look at me with my intelligence and my fun words. And what are these people, what are these giant moron gorilla humans know? It's like, well, they must know something. Like it's, it, that, that's, again, it, both can be problematic. If the giant gorilla people don't think there's anything to biomechanics, they're just demonstrably wrong. Mm. But we shouldn't dismiss everything they do either just because we think it isn't perfect. Yeah, I think like a big component of learning about this stuff is more like problem solving, injury prevention, longevity, and all the stuff that you don't necessarily see straight away. So it's not just about getting jacked and building as much muscle as possible. It's all of the, the management around that as well. So yeah, with these big guys, maybe what they're doing is perfect for what they want in terms of muscle building, but we want to look after our clients for the long, long run. And I want to see them like grannies still lifting and still have healthy joints and stuff like that. So yeah, like those things get complicated as well, right? Like, you're never going to see that in a study because how do you study? Well, first you'd have to do it for so long, right? And no one's got the funding for that. So in the six to eight weeks that you might have funding to, to study some hypertrophy in people, which is not high at the, uh, you know, funding agenda uh, <laughs> list of things because people have cancer and shit, you know, so yeah. fair enough. Uh, and uh, and then you well, actually have important problems. <laughs> yeah, do you know what I mean? It's like, well, I don't care that you're trying to optimize your bicep growth. This person <laughs> is dying of AIDS. So let's fund them. Uh, and you go, yeah, that's fair. Um, <laughs> so, you know, when we've got the whatever funding there is, and there is damn obviously, but they tend to be shortish term studies. And that obviously has limitations with stuff because let's say we don't align the elbow as effectively as we could with the direction of a resistance such that it puts stress on one side of the elbow joint more than the other because it's effectively creating a torque that the elbow doesn't rotate in that direction that all sounds fancy and complicated for anyone listening we can cover that another time as to exactly what the fuck that meant right but essentially we're not lining the elbow up very well and so that's creating a stress on the elbow a little bit does that matter in six to eight weeks on 21 year olds? Nah, probably not. Like you'd have to really yank on that thing in an awkward direction for their joints to really show something problematic with that. With a lot of injuries, they're repetitive and over time show their effect. We're quite resilient creatures, human beings, thank God, right? Otherwise we'd be utterly buggered. I didn't line it up perfectly and then my joints fell off. Like that wouldn't, that's not gonna be the case. That's not great. So a lot of this stuff wouldn't show up for, you know, when you're 20, you can set yourself on fire after a hangover, a sprint into a wall and then go train 20 minutes later. You're kind of fine, right? As you get older, that's definitely less and less the case. I'm 33, that's definitely less and less the case. But even within that, it's still more difficult because human beings vary in their tolerance for everything, right? Some people smoke to a hundred, no sign of cancer, they're gravy. Other people get, lung cancer and didn't go near a cigarette in their entire life some people managed to you know have the same impact basically in the same sport in a rugby tackle one of them breaks a leg the other one doesn't 
we don't necessarily know precisely why people's tolerances vary. We just go genetics <laughs> and a bit of luck. That's basically what we kind of attribute these things to. So just because one person doesn't align things perfectly doesn't mean they're definitely going to bugger their joints up further down the line. They might adapt to that in a positive manner and be perfectly fine. Like a poor and another per yeah, and another person might not be. So there's an element of genetic tolerance in that. There's an element of how misaligned was it? Like, you know, if you let's say we're doing a dumbbell bicep curl okay i need that load to go basically downwards but it might be angled over society depending on where my elbow sits well if it's slightly off from that that might not be a huge issue even over 50 years but if i had a force coming in instead of going straight down i put it just at 90 degrees and it came in from the side in a way that my elbow will never bend because that's not the structure of my elbow well i'm clearly going to be able to snap my elbow a lot faster and easier in that way so I've, I've gone for the extreme other end and gone, well, if you come in there, might not take many at all. And we're all going to be buggered. No one's going to be tolerant to that because it's a bit like trying to kick your knee backwards. It's like, well, it doesn't. <laughs> That's not its structure. And no one is tolerant of that. Tolerant to maybe a low amount of it, a low level of force trying to do that. But enough times or with a big enough force or whatever, it's going to snap that thing. That's just the way that goes. And so how far out of alignment does something have to be? How how beyond our tolerance does it need to be? How many times does it need to be? There, there's so many variables in that that you go, uh, so do I know that if someone doesn't align things that they're definitely going to be injured? No, and I shouldn't be fear-mongering in that manner. But does it make it more likely? Yeah, of course it does. Just like going, well, if I put a force through the knee in a direction the knee doesn't go, does it create it more, more, you know, more likely that I'm going to break my knee? Yeah, <laughs> of course it does. Um, so those are those other parts for me, biomechanics is really useful when it comes to, uh, injuries, working around them, um, respecting them and difficult to grow body parts there for me, where I think it really comes into its own uh, and gives us a bunch of tools and some understanding and things we can do to help that alleviate it, work around it while still coming up with a solution, whatever it happens to be. Yeah. I think like a lot of the time people who are either genetically gifted or assisted or whatever who grow muscle quite easily they've never have had to look for answers because they've never had pro the problems whereas like someone like myself who's always struggled to gain muscle and to develop my physique I've had to go searching for answers because I haven't been handed that ability so that's kind of there's an old line in uh, in sports that often mediocre athletes make the best coaches and it's true it's true, it's true. <laughs> now, you know when we say mediocre often you're still talking about very good yeah. Like, you know, these are, you know, if you take footballing kind of reference to go, Jurgen Klopp was a mediocre footballer. It was like, he was still a professional footballer. <laughs> like, that's still pretty good. Um, <clears throat> apparently, I'm going to cough there. That's nice for the audio. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, you know, mediocre is still relative. Uh, you know, we, we might say, even within the world of bodybuilding or whatever, you go, okay, Ben Pokolsky was a mediocre. <laughs> it's like, no, he wasn't. Like, Relative to the, to the average population, that man is a freak, right? But he might have been mediocre relative to Phil Heath from a genetic perspective. So maybe he had to search a bit more than kind of others. So, so we have to clarify, I think, sometimes what we mean by mediocre, because it can sound too insulting, I think, to, to, uh, to a bunch of people. But there's definitely some truth to some people just, especially if they're gifted, don't understand why other people don't respond like they do. Mm. Like, no, I just did this and then I could do that. You're like, well, I can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> That doesn't work for me. Right. Yeah, exactly. I, you, that footwork thing you just did. No, just no. Like, that's no, 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 I'm not messy. What the hell was that? 
I was quite happy with a pass that went to feet. Sweet. Right. Like it's, it all varies. Yeah. Cause I, I hear that argument a lot that people say like, Oh, why would I go to him as a coach or her as a coach? Like she's small or he's small or he doesn't have the muscle that this guy has. It's like, well, they probably spent and invested a lot of time learning how to develop muscle and all this stuff because they've had to, whereas the big yeah. guy probably has never needed to. So, you know, he might not have the most amount of knowledge to help you in your situation. So just, yeah. I mean, I think these ones, I almost call them, I think of them as almost intractable problems because we all, I, th- I think we have this thing where how do you judge a problem that you know nothing about? Mm-hmm. So let's say something went wrong on my car and I went to a mechanic. I don't know shit about cars, okay? A mechanic could make up parts on a car and tell That's me there was something. <laughs> yeah, 100%. They do the Phoebe thing, the left phalange is broken. <laughs> and I'd be like, okay. Because <laughs> I, I don't know enough to evaluate the issue, to know whether they're talking shit or ripping me off or whatever. And I don't know a way around that issue other than knowing mechanics. And the way we hopefully or generally tend to resolve this issue is reputation over time. That if enough people go to enough people with this, we slowly go, okay, they seem to do a good job. They've got good reviews. My friend recommended them. They've got, okay, they seem to have good results. Yeah, sweet, cool. And so we outsource it to, you know, a, a large scale group of people using it or using a variety of these ones and going, they rip you off. They do a shit job. Okay. And, and we kind of try and solve that problem that way because there isn't really a good other way around it. It's a bit like, how would you know who to take economic advice from? And one of the obvious places we might start is rich people, <laughs> right? And you might go, well, this professor, professor, apparently I'm Scottish now, this professor of economics knows more technically than this billionaire over here. Well, why isn't the professor of economics who knows plenty not also a billionaire if they're so good with their money? Well, maybe it was that the billionaire, you know, inherited all of it or... Well, okay, well, they, they were still a millionaire when they had it. Okay, well, there's still a giant difference between a million and a billion. So they must have done some stuff, right? Maybe it was a bit of dumb. No, I don't want to say dumb luck. I don't think you can become a billionaire through dumb luck. <laughs> uh, maybe you can become a millionaire through a bit of luck, but a billion is a silly amount of money. Right, but I, this one I always enjoy, right? To count to a, you ever come across this? To count to a million in seconds takes something like, it's between seven or 11 days. I forget exactly how long it is, right? So if you had a pound for every second, it takes about seven to 11 days it's somewhere in there i'm sure someone will correct us on this uh but it's in that kind of category do you know how long it would take to count to a billion with the same metric go on <laughs> 33 years oh my god yeah right the difference is orders of magnitude right like i'm just thinking in your head it's like just the next step is one million one billion <laughs> as though they're next to each other yeah. right it's like no no they're so far apart it's mental so maybe you can become a somewhat lucky millionaire you come up with the right product at the right time you didn't have to work that hard and it went very well maybe that happens i don't think it happens that frequently maybe then i just don't get that you could become a an accidental billionaire like you'd have to accidentally come up with the elixir of life (laughs) (laughs) or the genuine weight loss pill (laughs) and then you could maybe become you know an almost accidental billionaire but other than that i can't see how that would happen um so when it comes to how do we decide who to hire as coaches? I think we run into a similar issue of going, we just look with our, if we don't know enough, let's say we're, you know, we're, we're clients who by almost, depending on the type of client, obviously, but we've decided 
I don't know enough or I don't want to think about it. I'm going to outsource my training and nutrition requirements to that, that person over there. Who should I pick? <laughs> We've got a couple of options. What does the majority of people over time think have a good reputation? And I like the way they put this in that and there, there, there. Same as the car mechanic. Or who's the billionaire <laughs> with all the cash and this, that, and the other? Who looks biggest? Who looks best? And so I, I, I sort of can't blame clients because I think we see it all the time. Plenty of female clients pick the goal they want to look like. Guys pick the giant guy they want to look like. Because we go, well, they must have done something, right? Look at them. And I want to be like that. So I'm just going to copy what they did. Because they don't know enough to evaluate anything differently. And I, I, I think I see that as a bit of an intractable problem. Because how would you solve it? Yeah. I mean, if you've got ideas on how to solve it, be <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think that's why that happens. It's, again, it's one of those ones I think we just sort of have to accept a lot like the social media requires attention um, and grabbing attention kind of thing. It's, it's just a bit of reality, I think. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So I think we had a very, very good discussion there, Paul, about all things biomechanics. Do you have anything else that you want to add to the listener? Like say they're a personal trainer who is just like, oh my God, what is all this stuff? What's going on? Where would you direct them in terms of how they would start learning and start applying and getting better results for their clients. Yeah. So look, if you're going to, have, I'm sure heard this from Holly. If you're starting in the UK, probably the best place to start is Integra. Michael Goulden uh, over at Integra is certainly all our mentors. Oh. Um, yeah. So uh, we'd be remiss to not give Michael a shout out. RTS is obviously a place. Michael teaches RTS. RTS, the resistant training specialist coming from Tom Purvis in the States. Michael provides that uh, education in the UK as well as a bunch of his own stuff on top that as well um i have a thing coming that as holly alluded to will be launched next month and i'm sure I can i'm so it. annoyed i really want to know what it is i don't like surprises <laughs> and secrets <laughs> well i've got to wait for someone uh, to, to wrap up what they're currently doing on things before we can be announced so there you go you get a bit of well, from your email address i got a bit of a hint yeah yeah you'll know yeah. you'll certainly know part of it that's so clients and people who have to interact with me know the name of it <laughs> But I'm saving that until it gets fully announced. Yeah, I won't um, anyway, I'll keep it. You know, company name is there. That's all registered, all the kind of bits and pieces. So we're, we're finalizing uh, a couple of bits, just waiting for one of the other people who's going to be working with me on this to finish up what they're doing so we can announce it. We are working. I think the announcement is set for the 8th of May. I think it's going to be the work to date. So actually, you're the first person to hear that. So there's that. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so... When that comes out, it's like, come there, right? I'm going to be providing a whole bunch of... Well, I'm excited. Of- I have signed up to the email list because I wanted to know. So, <laughs> uh, so you, I mean, you could say, if you go on my profile, just search Paul Stendhal on Instagram, go in my bio, you can sign up to the main list where you can be the first to know about these new bits and pieces that are coming out. Personally, I always think as well with any of this stuff, if you're like, oh, this is weird and different and kind of interesting, men- I think in so many domains, mentors save you so much time over the mm. long haul that I, I can't recommend them enough. And I wish I could have, you know, I've been doing this 11 years. I could probably have saved five years of my career in terms of being there faster by working with mentors earlier on mm-hmm. uh, and doing more stuff. Whether that's because you get to know them and the network of people that they know, because they're going to know a bunch of people that you would actually quite like to also get to know and they can put in a word or put you in touch and all that kind of stuff. It's you get to pick their brain and use bits and pieces Whenever you work with a good coach as a coach, everyone always does this. And I've certainly done it in the past. You steal ideas where you're like, oh, I like how that bit works on their spreadsheet. Or I like that idea or that question that they use or whatever that happens to be. 
We all do that because of course we do. That's what we're all trying to do. Like, how do I level this thing up and, and be better at that? You'd be wrong to think that just having the same spreadsheets and the same type form questions makes you the same coach. It doesn't, right? Like you obviously still have to level up those skills. And that means some nutrition shit, some biomechanics stuff, uh, some psych things, some behavior change stuff kind of within there. And then just personality things. There's obviously going to be bits about if you're, some of this depends if you're online or in person. In person is actually easier to grow than online. You know, I know there's a big push for people to be online at the moment, but I actually think for most trainers, the first two, three years of your career should probably be spent mainly in person um, and just getting better at what you do. PT is often missold, right? As like, you're going to make loads of cash straight out the gate uh, and you're going to have a great life while doing it. It's like, no, that's not what the first couple of years of being a PT are like. You're going to be struggling, working hard. Yeah, and not having the payoff yet. But if you do the right, it was one of the sad things about the industry. And the last time I checked this was something like the industry average for someone who qualifies as a PT to then never does it again is like 18 months. Mm-hmm. That might have changed a bit, but I don't think so. If anything, it might have gotten shorter. And that's skewed by people like me who've been doing it 11 years, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a bunch of people in there quitting in a year because it wasn't what they thought it was. And I think that's a shame. Uh, and it doesn't have to be that way because this can be a great career. And there are plenty of clients really out there. Like obesity is on the rise. People will always care about what they look like because we're an evolved sexually selective species. That ain't ever changing. If peacocks give a fuck about what they look like, mm-hmm. Kim Kardashian exists, you will care. So will your clients. There's, a, you know, or whether it's they're injured and they're sedentary and getting older and die. There are so many bits that fitness can help. There's plenty of work here for us now and in the future. So there can be great careers in this, but, you know, a six week or three month PT course is never going to prepare you fully for that because (laughs) no qualification uh, prepares you for a complex field in three months. Like it can't, that takes years to feel good at, to feel confident in your skill set, to have worked with people and to know the answers to some of the questions that come up and to know how to relate to them and how to solve them. It's going to take time. So mentors are often uh, a, a great thing to have in there. So, you know, if, if that's something people are interested in, I run mentoring myself as well, obviously coaching as well. I can write um, for, for mentoring as well. <laughs> yeah, we went through physics stuff. Uh, with that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> How long ago was that? Oh God, that was in my old house, maybe like last summer. Was it last summer? Yeah, cool. Thanks. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. there's, uh, there's, there's plenty of things kind of within there that I would, I would definitely recommend um so yeah those, those would be the places to start would be integra um obviously the the muscle mental still has some stuff but a bunch of that is changing so at the moment that would be difficult to recommend because i'm devastated i don't know what i'm gonna have to try and troll the, the, the portal isn't there yeah, so, yeah exactly so i'm like i could recommend a portal but it'll be there for like a month uh so that'd be difficult to recommend right now but if you wanted to get in for a month and just dip your toe in you could absolutely do that. I presume Luke still uh, does mentoring, though. I think so. I presume so. Yeah, I presume so. He's, he, he was, he'd cut back on a bunch of that kind of stuff. Um, I don't know if he's picked... Maybe if you ask back. him nicely enough and say, pretty please, he might let you. Yeah, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so you could kind of do that. Jimbo, James Sutton, um, yeah. is same kind of thing as well. I think a, a lot of mentoring is about the... Or coaching, it's true both, is it's their relationships, right? So they're about how well do you connect with that person's style right there are plenty of people in the industry who know loads and you could learn lots from so one of the questions after that is okay well there's probably a couple of questions what's the cost that's a factor for everyone um some people more than others and you go okay so mentoring for me 
for example, is 400 a month. We jump on a call each month, uh, each month, each week, and go through whatever we kind of need to within that. Is 400 quid worth the level up in skill that you will get from going through that process? If the answer to that is yes, and most mentoring things are going to be at least in that ballpark kind of area if you're having a weekly call. Then after that, you go, okay, can I afford that? Yes or no? <laughs> That's going to solve one of the questions for you. The next question then as to whether you should go with me or you should go with Jimbo or Luke or whoever that you fancy is, who do you feel like you resonate the most with, with their content, their style of delivery, the way they communicate all these bits and pieces? Because no one person is going to gel with everyone perfectly. Everyone has their preferences in style. And so those are those personal questions. I think one of the things is work with a bunch. I've had a bunch of mentors over the years. Uh, I still have some. And you pick things up from all of them in a variety of different ways. So, you know, those things I also think keep you excited. Like they they give you content often because you're like, ah, I'll just make things on some of the shit that I've been talking about. Put it through the lens of does it help my client? <laughs> uh, and make sure you communicate it, not just on what you learn as a word for word espousing of that, but make it relevant to the client. And if that topic, even though you're excited about it, isn't relevant to your client, do a different thing. When you're a business, everything has to be about the person you serve whoever they happen to be, not you. <laughs> I mean, you can do it wrong. You can do some personal posts a bit and like, here's because people want to know you and they want to share in your life a little bit. But fundamentally, the question of what's in this for me, <laughs> what's if, 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 you know, and you don't have to think about yourself when you're scrolling social media and stuff. When you're going through, you'll be like, I don't care, don't care, don't care. <laughs> things you care about. So you have to make this shit things people in your audience will care about if, they, if they're going to stop. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that's, that's around the reeking. So if people want to apply for mentoring or coaching with you, how do they do that? Yeah, go pop. Easiest one is to pop onto my Instagram, go through the link in my bio. There's a very easy form to fill out there. It'll book you in at the end of it for a call where we can have a little waffle, uh, see if it's right for you, see what the right kind of approach is for that. And then we take it from there. So just put search Paul Standell uh, on Instagram and it's pretty straightforward. Perfect. So yeah, that was a very, very good podcast. Thank you very much for joining me. Um, if you guys have tuned in and you've enjoyed the podcast I'd appreciate if you could just take a screenshot share it to your story tag myself I'm at Holly Davidge on Instagram and at Paul underscore Standell I think it is now Uh, and we really appreciate the reshare but yeah I think that's it if you guys have any questions any suggestions for further topics or guests please send them my way because I'm always looking for new suggestions and thank you very much for listening and we'll catch you guys next time